It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 85. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. So how's life, Gary? Uh, it's pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. It's been cold here. I've been shoveling snow almost every day for the last several days. Finally dried out here. Um, although they're threatening us with more rain, of course, in the next couple of days. But yes, as I mentioned last week, we, we have set a record or two. So I spent yesterday in the dentist chair. Oh, uh, coincidence. <laughs> it, it, indeed. We were just talking about that before we hit record, that somebody else was in the dentist I was, chair. I was just in the dental, dentist chair just a couple hours ago. Yeah, so I went through the whole uh, Novocaine or Lidocaine or whatever the heck it is, they, whatever cane it is they use on your yeah. mouth. I did have a couple of uh, fillings filled. It's weird, though, because so the worst part for me is the needle. I just, you know, I, I just, mm. I don't like the needle going in. I have to watch. That's really stressful. I have to not watch, actually. It's very stressful. And the same is true when I donate blood. I, I can, I have to look away when they stick a needle in my arm. Once I, once it's in... No problem. I mean, I can, you know, look at the blood spewing out, whatever. It doesn't really mm -hmm. bother me. Uh, same for my face. The uh, But it's weird because it takes effect pretty quickly, and then it takes forever to wear off. But what I noticed yesterday afternoon, and hopefully you'll notice it sometime today too, that um, all of a sudden, it's just gone. It's mm -hmm. not like it's this long, gentle thing of, I don't know if, if you if you just you know get so used to it that you don't notice it fading away, but it was like yesterday afternoon at one point, it was like, oh, I can feel my the other side of my tongue again. Yay. Yeah. So. Yep. Well, I am no stranger to, uh, you know, dental work from a kid, uh, braces, everything. I mean, I basically, I've had my share. I've had everything done you can possibly imagine um, I've yeah so I've I'm probably in the same boat I've got did the braces thing um, you know in later years now I've had I think one root canal yeah um, one for me too yeah it was not so, I don't know how long ago yours was mine was maybe five eight years ago something it was right. not as bad as advertised at all right. matter of fact it was I mean they give you so much painkiller that you don't feel a thing and they brace your mouth open so you don't have to pay attention, you know, like you do it. You're the regular dentist. And they actually told me that uh, the root canal, they said, well, you may drift off and fall asleep. And I was like, yeah, right. In the middle of the root canal, I'm going to fall asleep. And you know what? They were right. I did fall asleep. <laughs> it, it's a very weird thing There's because there's nothing for you to do. And it's kind of sensory deprivation. You're nothing to look at, nothing to whatever. I had uh, music playing uh, and I... I actually dozed off. It was weird. So root canal, not that bad. I mean, the after pain was, you know, something to contend with, but it still wasn't as bad as Always, yeah. everybody yeah. had said. It hurt my wallet a lot more than it hurt <laughs> physically. <laughs> That was like the main thing. I I didn't cry during it, but after when I saw the bill, I shed some tears. Of course, um, the one experience I had that that I don't know. I don't want to say mimics that. So I had my wisdom teeth out when I was a teenager. That means and I uh, they once again they give you good drugs. I mean, I did fall asleep during the procedure. I was I was out, but I have this one memory of waking up and remember seeing the at that point the oral surgeon, I guess. And I think he had like a hammer and a chisel in his hand. 
Oh. And the reason I woke up is because he just you know, had to break one of the teeth in order to get it out. Ouch. Um, so I, they noticed I was awake. They just sort of pumped up the dosage a little bit, and I drifted back off to sleep. So didn't Every care. time you say, every time anybody says wisdom teeth or having wisdom teeth removed, I, of course, always think of the computer game Ultima 4. <laughs> the reason being is that I got the week off of school to have it done, a fresh new copy of Ultima 4 on an Apple IIe. Ah. And I stayed at home uh, dealing with the pain and played through the game Ultima 4 on my Apple IIe that wow. week. So it's kind of associated with it. And um, yeah, one of my favorite all-time favorite games. That's what I never played. Ultima 3 and 4. I love those yeah. two. They were like the, the key, uh, really something. My Apple II games were, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Adventure. The original uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. Okay, yes. And um, the original Star Trek. Oh, yeah. I, character yeah, I remember Star this, Trek. Which, in fact, game. I remember playing on our on the mainframe um, at the University of Washington. Uh, actually spending money because, of course, you know, they had student accounts that had a certain number, limit of, of minutes of processor time. But if you wanted to do something else. So I actually ended up spending real money getting a personal account on the mainframe just so that I could do things like... Um, print uh, um, ASCII art on the line printer yeah. and uh, um, play Star Trek on the terminal. And then also uh, at that point I was learning uh, assembly language and, and Fortran programming on the, uh, on the mainframe. Good times. Good yep. times. So um, why don't you go ahead and go first this time, Gary, what you got? Oh, okay. Well, I, you know, I know we talked a little bit about the election last week without actually bringing up politics and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> and not bring up politics, but talk about the election because I think it's you know it's a big election year and technology is at the forefront of a lot of this. Um, so as you can imagine, there's the number one website out there or service out there for when people see information and they click on it to read more or view more is of course Facebook. You know people see stuff about candidates or issues or whatever. Facebook's number one, and Facebook has already announced that months and months ago they said we're doing all this. We have a whole department, and we're going to make sure you know spread of false information is taken care of and all that. But in the last week, two uh, other services, which I believe are number two and number three, or at least definitely number two, uh, YouTube and Twitter, have come in and said, "Here's what we're going to do that's new to stop the spreading of false information or." people trying to unduly influence you, that kind of thing, um, on their services. And YouTube is definitely the number two service that people go to see a piece of information and share it or read about it or, or whatever. So they came out with a, uh, a like a, I guess, a blog, but, you know, it's kind of like a press release kind of thing of here's what we're doing. And I thought it would be interesting to go through, look through what YouTube is doing because they're doing some new stuff. Um, for instance... They are looking for content that is technically manipulated or doctored in a way that misleads users. So like, or, you know, when a candidate uh, or official is, you know, their video is slowed down a bit to make them look maybe like they're, you know, not as with it as they should be, or frames are removed or, you know, you know, things are manipulated in the image. YouTube's going to take that down. And they're, they're going to look for that. Are they actually going to take it down or are they just going to mm -hmm. make it hard to find? So, no, this is, so this is for 
this is their guideline for removing content. Wow. So this, so if they find this, they'll remove that content. Um, also, and they specifically point this one out, so I guess that's more prevalent than I thought, a video that has been technically manipulated to make it appear that government official is dead. So apparently wow. that's a thing is people like taking the news and breaking it up to make it seem like they're announcing that somebody has died. Um, yeah. So the, basically they're putting this in the rules. So now they can go and just remove the content and then point to a rule and say, Hey, this, you broke a rule content's gone. You know, it's funny because it, the it, rules are seem to be a little bit more exhaustive than just, you can't do deep fakes. Right. So, and that's in there too. I'm getting to that. Uh -huh. Um, well, I think that's the uh, that's part of the first one too. Is like the deep fakes thing. Twitter right. talks more about deep fakes, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But uh, but yeah, definitely that is not allowed. Um, also, inc incorrect information like telling viewers an incorrect voting date, and this is something we saw before, where there would be either ads or videos saying "Don't forget to vote on" and give you the date, and it's the wrong date. And I don't know who's falling for that. But it's still, you know, something that now they have a rule and they could point to the rule and say, nope, the content is removed from YouTube. Right. Um, also, false claims related to technical eligibility requirements. In other words, like saying somebody wasn't, you know, isn't technically eligible to run for an office. Um, and, you know, whether it's uh, running for president because you weren't born in, in the country. I was going to say, I wonder if that's in response to uh, the, the old birther stuff. Oh, yeah, that's definitely there. But also there's other things. I mean, you, sometimes you see, you know, people making up rules, not just the, the eligibility. So like saying somebody can't technically run for Senate because they weren't, they're not from the state or they haven't lived in the state long enough when that's not actually the rule, that kind of thing. So they've got these rules and it's good to have rules because they can then point to the rule and you can, if you see the rule being uh, disobeyed, you know, you could report, report it and say it breaks this rule. Um, also, this includes not just voting, but the census too, because we've got a census right. this year. Right. So, uh, so to mislead people about the census process. So that's kind of interesting. That is so, but one of the questions I've got for all these, I, <laughs> I mean, there's obviously somebody has to decide, for example, what's true and what's not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's obvious. Yep. I really worry about the gray areas. Of course, that is, well, that's why they've got humans doing this, right? So they have to make editorial decisions. In a lot of cases, it's, there won't, it won't be a problem. It'll be obvious, right? right. There's a right. false piece of information. Uh, then there's going to be the, the two gray areas. One is kind of misleading. Well, they don't say this, but they kind of apply it, that kind right. of thing. Yep. And the other will be when it's, uh, you know, it's like the gray area of what the, whether it's true or not. You know, right, a fact, a fact in dispute. Right? Yeah, in dispute, yeah. So both sides could, could argue either way. And, and I think, you know, YouTube, just seeing how they handle other things, um, a lot of times they definitely err on the side of caution, like when removing content, whether or not it's uh, say pornographic content or copyright infringement, that kind of thing. Um, so I could see them doing that because at least for copyright infringement, you can contest that. So I think as long as you'll be able to contest this, which I imagine you could, they would err on the side of saying, take it down. And if the person actually comes back to us and says, Hey, wait a minute and has a dialogue, then, we can look at it more closely. Otherwise, 
most of it probably is if somebody's really doing something wrong, they're not going to come back at all, right? They disappear. Their account really doesn't have a person behind it at all, you know, who's checking anything. You know, yeah. those folks, I'm not worried about those folks. I, I really am not. If, you know, if it's, if it's truly a fake or malicious account, yeah. the fact that something gets taken down of theirs that maybe technically shouldn't get taken down doesn't mm-hmm. bother me. What bothers me the most is I think that some of this could be weaponized. And I say that because I honestly don't believe that the first line of defense here is a human. I honestly believe that when things get reported, it goes into an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, it, you know, one report may not get anybody's attention, but if all of a sudden they've got, you know, 10 or a hundred or a thousand people reporting a specific video as being in violation of some terms, then the algorithm, a bot is going to say, oh, we've exceeded a threshold. I'll take it down. Well, and then, yeah. and then it's kind of sort of up to, um, uh, the, the video's owner to then take that additional step of contesting it if they can, or if they're willing to go through the effort, because honestly, YouTube has a really bad reputation at being contestable. Um, they're, they're very, op- they're very um, um, opaque in the sense that um, you know, it's, you don't know, you're not really talking to a person. They're not giving you any details. They're just saying you're in violation of these standards, but they won't tell you what you did wrong. Right. Uh, it's very disheartening if you've actually had a, a video taken down and you want to go through it. So my concern is that a lot, you know, the, a, a faction could weaponize um, this kind of a reporting structure and um, have otherwise truthful videos taken down. Could be. Uh, I, we just don't know whether these particular rules are going to have to go through a human or an algorithm or, you know, I think with the copyright stuff, sometimes it is a human, but they've blessed kind of an outside human with the ability to do this. You know, a copyright holder like a large media company will get access to a tool that they can use to claim copyright. Right. And they, you know, YouTube will say you can do it right Not So the general public can't do it, but they've said, it's okay for you at this company to be able to do it. And then it'll be a copyright violation. I've, you know, had a few of those over the years and I've refuted them and gotten them put back because they were mistakes. Um, and, you know, so for me, it's been pretty responsive. I don't, I think it's just been a matter of a couple of days in each case, yeah. but it hasn't been co- recently. My concern is just that, you know, there, there's so much content, right? So much video going up right. that I just can't conceive of having enough people to police it all, even, you know, yeah. even all the, the reports that may be coming in. So there's got to be some kind of an automated filter up front. Well, I think, I think part of it is perhaps they're not gonna even going to bother looking at the videos that get just a couple of, you know, views. Right. And, you know, but if the algorithm says that, oh, here's something political and here's something that is trending, you know, starting to trend, then maybe that will be the trigger. It's going to be easier for politics than for things like, say, music videos. You know, uh, there's probably way more of those. Um, They've got some other rules here too. They've got, uh, these aren't for removing videos. These are for terminating channels. Right. So if you attempt to impersonate another person or channel, that can get your channel removed. Yep. Um, if you misrepresent your country of origin, so in other words, you claim you're posting from the United States, but you're actually 
another in another country. Interesting. And yeah, you can get your channel terminated for that. And if you conceal your association with a government actor, now first I thought government actor. Well, that sucks because it should be like candidate maybe or something. But then I started to realize that oh, I they're not saying U.S. government. I think they're saying government as in any government. Right. Some some overseas government trying yes. to influence our election by posing as you know United States. Yeah, and it's so concealing yep. it. So yep. if yep. you if you say, "Hey, I'm just you know John Q. Public, and here's my opinion on the election," and it turns out that you are actually getting paid or somehow working for a foreign government, then it's like, "Nope," you know, and your channel gets terminated. Yeah, so that makes total sense. Um, now you were asking about humans involved. So YouTube uh, goes on to say they have something called an intelligent intelligence desk that they started in 2018 um, to look at trends surrounding inappropriate content and problematic behavior. So those would be, be the humans, um, although they might be higher level, like to actually look at the actual, like making these rules and how to implement them. There mm -hmm. might be people lower down that actually, you know, take a look at the individual videos. Um, but they've been using it for a while and doing interesting things. Uh, like for instance, um, looking for uh, videos posted by terrorist organizations. So there's more than just politics here. I'm actually, they actually use something called hashes, uh, digital fingerprints uh, to find uh, stuff. And I, I actually, I don't want to talk about that because I, I might want to talk about that next week as a whole subject. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I find it, I, I find the hashes and, and just cryptography that, yeah. that falls from that really interesting, but I know it's incredibly deep yeah. and I just wonder how they apply it to this. Now, there's a whole other side to this for YouTube. On the other side, they actually are starting kind of initiative to work with uh, news organizations and candidates directly to do some things. So they want to raise up authoritative authoritative voices. So the idea being that when you search for something, like say a candidate's name, um, the algorithm won't spit out 10, you know, opinions of random people uh, before it shows you that, hey, that candidate has a YouTube channel. Right. You now you look for that candidate's name, the first thing you're going to see is that candidate's YouTube channel. Um, and the same thing for news sources. If a uh, you know, a certain news source of some, I guess they have a group of them, they kind of certify, has a YouTube video on something, they'll give those kind of priorities. So when you search for something political and say all the news stations have reported on it, you're going to see those news stations first before you hear, you know, John Q. Public's uh, opinion on it on YouTube, which, you know, to me, it's like, I don't like that when it comes to most content, but maybe for political content during an election year, that's kind of a necessary evil is to give preference to the big, bigger companies that, uh, you know, they can, they have some sort of, I don't know, uh, you know, they could be called on anything that they do. You know, you know who the journalist is, you know who the organization is and all of that, as opposed to a random person posting to YouTube where you don't know that stuff. Right. Um, so they want to highlight quality journalism is what they said uh, in here. And they're going to have information panels. So when you search for something like a, like a breaking news event, there might be short previews of text-based news in the search results. So in other words, giving you the scoop before you may have the chance to get influenced by a bad actor that came in there. And they've been doing this already and they've seen, uh, and they've seen this work, or at least the numbers show that people are actually going to 
the the actual content that they're providing at the top of the page rather than diving into various things. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, and the recommendation system too. So, you know, big thing in YouTube is you go to watch a video and then it recommends videos on the side. Right. So they're going to, uh, you know, make sure the recommendation system is going to minimize harmful misinformation and prioritize, uh, you know, stuff from, you know, authoritative sources so that when you are looking at a video about a news something going on in the news or something going on in politics, the things on the side may actually be real news reports about that rather than just more videos that it'll be interesting because they're they're gonna come into um <clears throat> they're gonna come find criticism anyway, no matter what they do. Because of course what's an authoritative news source to you and I might be um, you know, complete yellow journalism to someone else. Sure. But, I mean um and that's where things get really, really sticky. Yeah, and I I mean I looked at some of the examples and things like, you know, major news stations and newspapers as you can imagine. Um so all name uh, all names I kind of recognized. Uh the other thing they're doing is they're working with um they're working with the news organizations and uh politicians uh to help them optimize their presence on YouTube. So in other words, stuff that you and I as YouTube creators kind right. of already know, you know, have good thumbnails and keywords and stuff like that. You know, they're basically going to try to make sure that there's not like a candidate or news organization out there that just kind of is bad at doing that because they just don't have somebody on their staff to help them. So they're going to provide assistance to them. Uh, and that probably helps YouTube too. So they don't have to go and say, well, let's a lot, you know, let's bless this news source, even though they're, you know, optimization is crappy <laughs> they could actually like tell them like make sure you have good keywords in there make sure right. your headline makes sense and all that and then we can promote you to the top of the search results with good reason because it's quality stuff not just because you know we know it's quality stuff but because it looks like quality stuff um and also they uh there's advertisements of course on youtube um so they want to have more they're going to do more visibility on who is buying election ads Right, which I think honestly is something that um, should transcend way more than YouTube. Right, um, we get that even here in the in the, the local elections. You end up with election this um, you know mailer in your mail, and it's you know pro or con uh, some random issue, yeah. and they certainly say you know done by. But when you try and look at at who that organization is or what that individual is, there's nothing. Um, it's it's crazy. Oh yeah, and it's yeah, and even things like there's push polling, which is where you get a telephone survey or something in the mail, and it looks like a, a, a legitimate political poll, and it's very close to a legitimate political poll. But in fact, the language asking you the questions is meant to manipulate you right. into maybe altering your opinion or making you aware of some issue or something, uh, you know. And so that's push polling, and it's been a technique goes predates the internet by a long oh, of shot. Course, of course, and uh, as a matter of fact, I would be surprised if it was used in ancient Rome. Um, <laughs> and you know, but it's it's a it's a sneaky technique, and it really you know to just to point out something for you know a negative thing about a candidate, just ask a polling question, and you know, yeah, it works. So Twitter also, strangely enough, at the same time here basically came out with uh, their things. But here's the interesting thing Twitter's going to do. It doesn't really look like they're going to do much to remove content, 
right? Twitter doesn't really do that much of that. What they are going to do is label content. So they have a set of rules for labeling things. So, uh, and they did a survey and they give survey results and they say like most, almost everybody thinks that uh, if something is misleading or is false information on it, it would be great if Twitter labeled it. But it's only a little over 50% of people thinks Twitter should remove it. So they're using that as justification to basically say um, oh, they're going to label. Uh, label tweets containing synthetic. Yeah. How prominent the labels are. So, and, and they do say you may not deceptively share synthetic or manipulated media that are likely to cause harm. Now, saying you may not tells me that we will remove. So maybe there is some stuff they will remove. But right. we may label tweets containing synthetic and manipulated media to help people understand the media's authenticity and provide additional context. So what are they going to do? So if the, first, if the content's been substantially edited in a manner that alters its composition, so maybe misquoting somebody by taking some words out, that kind of thing, or quoting them out of context, um, if uh, then video audit, auditory information, uh, you know, so changing videos, overdubbed audio, modified subtitles. Well, that's one there, right? Mm -hmm. Doing modified subtitles. Uh, then, um, then what media depicting a real person that has been fabricated or simulated. So that's your deep fakes. Right. Right. So there's that. And, uh, and falsely claiming that, uh, that the media shared depicts reality which is a really interesting way to saying there's no, something fake. No fake stuff, yeah. Falsely claiming that it, de that, that it depicts reality. Um, so they, you know, they've got a set of rules, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, they will then, here's what they're going to do. They're going to apply a label to the tweet, and I've yet to see one, or this hasn't started yet because it starts on March 5th. So applying some sort of label. So you'd see this still, and then you'd get a label saying, I don't know, this could be false. I don't know what it's going to look like. Then if you try to retweet some, retweet it or like it, you'll get a warning telling you that this is false or misleading or whatever. They'll also reduce the visibility of the tweet, right. like when it's recommended or trending and all that. And they may provide additional explanations and clarifications, such as uh, a landing page with more context. So maybe if somebody posts something that's false, they may redirect it to a landing page that says, here's the content. It's one more link away, but you know, here's something you should know about it right. first off. So that's going to be interesting. This is all stuff that we could see, and I'm really curious to actually see it in action, uh, what these labels look like, what this landing page may look like. Hasn't Facebook kind of been thing. doing something similar to this already, labeling yeah. things? Yeah, and I think... Yeah, and what they've been doing a lot of removal. I know that. Mm -hmm. um, so they just take things down or make them invisible, you know, so they, they don't appear on my feed, even though a right. friend of mine might have liked some false information somewhere. Um, they just don't allow it to spread. My sense for what they done, did on Facebook, and the reason I, I wonder what the visibility is going to be like on Twitter, is that um, when something is labeled, I've only seen it once or twice. I, apparently, I have really... Um, smart friends who only post the truth. <laughs> but um, when I've seen it, it's been kind of low key. I don't want to say that it's easy to miss, 
but it's at least easy to underestimate its importance. And given how people consume mm. what's on their screens or on their devices, uh, I could easily see it being overlooked or simply dismissed out of hand. So it'll be interesting to see if it has any, uh, any impact. Yeah. And, you know, at least, but these companies all seem to be doing something this time around. Right. They all seem to have people, whether the people are completely involved in 100% of the decisions or there's some sort of algorithmic uh, part to it. You know, we don't know. Um, you know, I think, will they be criticized? Of course. I think, of course they will. <laughs> but I think that's fine. I think, I think the measure may actually be uh, like being equally criticized on both sides. Um, and I know in the old newspaper days, the, you know, if you got complaints from conservatives and lib- liberals both, uh, you knew you were doing something right. And if you know, like got complaints from one side, you're like, well, maybe we're a little biased. Right. Uh, right. So uh, another measure of success for me is uh, responsiveness, because almost by definition, they're going to get stuff wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be really important. Uh, both to the whole process, but also to the legitimacy of whatever it is they decide to implement, how quickly they are to react to complaints, um, reinstate things that were taken down incorrectly or labeled incorrectly or whatever, uh, basically admit to their errors, but then also how much they're going to be willing to refine their process uh, between now and November. Because that's when it's going to matter the most. Yeah, yeah. And both, you know, YouTube and Twitter are very different in terms of if content's removed because Twitter is very timely. You know, if something's taken down and you get it reinstated tomorrow, you know, the next day, whatever, then, uh, you know, big deal. It's like yesterday's tweets or yesterday's tweets, right? Nobody cares right. about them. Right. Whereas YouTube, it's very different. You know, you put a video up and, you know, you, you want you want it to get back up there and you don't care that it's yesterday's YouTube video. It's meant to last longer, um, perhaps it'll be evergreen content even. So two very different things. And Twitter almost, if like there's a mistake and something's taken down, you could just tweet it again, you know, or tweet tweet it with different, you know, maybe, uh, clarifications, Right. you know, um, where it's, it's a little harder to do on YouTube. Uh, but, but anyway, um, yeah, I am looking forward to, it. I'm glad, I think it's, I think it's all, you know, all the companies seem to be doing something. I wish Facebook would ban political ads like I believe Twitter has and some of the other companies have, right. uh, even Facebook, I think says it's a very tiny percentage of their ad revenue is political. And I, you know, I think the benefits outweigh, you know, the benefits for the company would outweigh. Uh, the consequences of losing that ad revenue if they would just simply say, look, just no political ads. Right. We're just not going to accept them. And, you know, it would make it easy for them. Think of, you know, how easy it would be to not have to judge the ads and is, is it clear who it's from and you know, let's have transparency. They could just say, nope, we don't need any of that because we're just not going to have political ads. Right. Uh, so maybe... I don't know. I wish they would do that. I, I know there are other countries that actually have bans on political ads uh, or some of them have bans. I think it's Germany has one that's like a certain time before the election, like a certain number of days before right. uh, 30 days or something. I don't know what it is, but, um, and I think those are all really interesting models. I'm a free speech guy and I have to weigh that with free speech, but I, I, I mean, I think you can differentiate between paid advertising and 
and free speech, and especially in today's day and age, if you go back 50 years ago, 100, 200 years ago, and you could say, well, there is no free speech without pay because you can't reach people. Now, if somebody wants to get their opinion out there, they couldn't afford 200 years ago to print a pamphlet or a book. And 50 years ago, they couldn't afford to get their voice heard in any way. But that's less true now than it's ever been because of the internet. You know, anybody can have a Twitter account, a blog, uh, you know, medium.com, all these different places you could go and get your voice heard or at least get your, your thing published for free. You know, the cost of publishing is free. Maybe the cost of gaining viewers is still something, but it's still less than it used to be. There's an interesting problem in that. Um, you're free to say whatever you want. That's really what free speech is all about yeah. on your own platform. Yeah. So uh, like you and I, we can say what we want on our own websites, but we're certainly free to you know, randomly delete comments help capriciously if we wanted to, um, because it's our turf. And these players, YouTubes and the Facebooks and and Twitter and so forth, they're almost straddling an interesting different line where, yes, it's their turf and they set the rules, but they've become such an integral part in our um, in our system, in our society, that um, there's starting to be an argument for them needing to be held to a more open standard. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, is that they're not pushing back too far on that. Like, you know, like Twitter is probably the most obvious, I think, because Facebook is kind of divided up. Like you post things and it doesn't post really to the world. It posts to your feed, you know, mm-hmm. to, and then it goes to your friends and it could propagate. Twitter really is like, you know, unless you, have, you don't have your account set public, Twitter, you could publish something and it, anybody that wants to look at it could see it right? And, and retweet it and all of that. So Twitter's the closest to that. And you don't see Twitter going and saying, well, we're definitely not. And they're also not saying, well, we definitely are, (laughs) you know, they're very self-aware that they're straddling like that line there, like you said, and you know, it's still remains to be seen whether or not they are kind of this public service. And if they are public service, they're kind of an international public service. You can't really go and say. That gets even more confusing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, all I know is it's going to be a very interesting and long and at times frustrating summer. Yeah, that's true. True. Well, what do you got? So this is, regardless of the name, the name implies something that it doesn't really. Um, Privacy.com. So I was listening to um, a podcast from the other Leo, Leo Laporte, Mm -hmm. probably security now since I listen to that occasionally. And one of his sponsors is this service called Privacy.com. So here's a question for you, Gary. If if you wanted to gift someone a subscription to, let's just say Apple TV, Mm -hmm. can you? I'm not sure about Apple TV in particular. I could do an app, uh, and I could, but I'm not sure if I can. It's so new. Any kind of not. Any kind of a subscription service. Here's the problem I yeah. ran into a few weeks ago. You remember on um, two weeks ago, I spoke about um, the new uh, Star Trek Picard. I like it, et cetera, et cetera. And I decided I wanted to give a, uh, a year subscription to a friend of mine who uh-huh. had not yet signed up for CBS All Access. The question is, how do you do that? Uh-huh. Um, 
it's it's a subscription service. You give them an email address and a credit card and you've got access. But I needed it to be his email address and my credit card. But that hmm. means I have to give him my credit card um, and trust that he's only going to use it for that, which in this case, of course, I would. But it just sort of seems like a very awkward way of of getting that done. Yeah. So what... To, to, to switch topics, I'll come back to that in just a second, but to switch just a little bit, you and I have probably discussed at some point in the past these credit card companies that allow you to generate a credit card number on the fly. In fact, doesn't the Apple card let you do that? I let you change it and it automatically generates it on the fly, but not like you're talking about, like some okay. of these cards that you okay. do. And then you could use that one as your Amazon card number and another one is your eBay card number and all that. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the idea there is that that isolates you from breaches or issues at any one provider. They get that one credit card number and not your credit card number, right? Not the global credit card number you can mm-hmm. use anywhere. Uh, so you just sort of can turn that off. Privacy.com is essentially that for anyone. Now, it's not a credit card. Um, It's a debit card. But by definition, what you do after you set up your account is you say, oh, okay, I want to buy X. You generate a credit card number right then and there. In fact, Uh they even have a browser extension that'll do do it for you on the fly. Um, And you submit that credit card number along with the expiration date and the and the the security code that comes with it. And that credit card number, you can do a couple of different things with it. You can say that credit card number is valid only for the very first company that makes a charge against it. If that credit card number is used anywhere else, it simply gets declined. Or you can say that credit card number is used, has has a limit of X number of dollars per month, like 10 or 20, um, or X number of dollars per year. So what that boils down to is it's a great way to, in my case, give that gift to a friend. I actually did give him, I printed out a little image, um, of a faux credit card, which was a real credit card number that he could then go and sign up for CBS All Access with. Um, The bill comes to me. I get notifications when it gets charged. Um, I get the ability to turn that credit card number if we ever stop becoming friends, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, it's, It's, there's just a lot of control over what happens with the card. Now, one of the reasons that I believe they focus on privacy, at least in their name, is that when the card gets validated, the only thing they pay attention to is the number, the expiration date, and the, and the security code. What that means is that you don't have to give over your real name, your billing address, Um, your location, your zip code, so forth. The other kinds of things that are traditionally required when you're making a credit card payment that further expose more of your information to whomever it is you're purchasing from, Um, which basically, again, protects your privacy. Uh, I've been using it now for a couple of different things. It's actually pretty cool. Like I said, it is a debit card. Uh, The setup process has you hooking it up either directly with your bank, so you give them you know, a, a, a routing number and an account number, or you can hook it up with the, a debit card you have against your bank account. Um, so essentially, it just runs through your debit card. It acts as a debit card running through your debit card. 
Mm. Uh, but I've found it just really, really handy for a number of these kind of off the wall kind of situations where gift giving um, is just one of them. Hmm. And it could be, I, I see for, a, it could be used like for an emergency situation, like for a family member uh, that needs some money right. for something. You yep. can set up a, you know, the, one of the single use things, yep. you know, with a limit or whatever and say, here's the card number and expiration and all that. And then it's just that one thing. And uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's just very useful if they've got to be the ones entering the numbers in, but you want to give them the money. Right, which is like I said, the the whole the whole structure of most of these subscription services. You, it's very difficult to to give gift subscriptions. And in fact, um, I have been giving a subscription to an online service to a a niece of mine for a couple of years now, and that turned out to be so painful that I just said, you know what, just go subscribe to it. Tell me how much it is, and I will just you know transfer that kind of money into your bank account or something every, every year when this mm. thing renews. Um, that just sort of seems, I don't know, it's, it's awkward. It certainly doesn't have that same feel of, of actually giving someone a gift where in turn you can turn around and say, hey, use this credit card for that and you're done. Um, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. It does it definitely fill an itch. I can think of a bunch of different uses for this potentially. Right. So as it turns out, um, it's uh, free to a, to a certain amount. Uh, you can create, I think it is six credit cards per month at their free tier. That's a lot. Which, which is actually not, yeah, that's a fair amount when you're, um, when you're not um, using it heavily or when you're just starting out to see how it's, how it's going to work for you. That's plenty. Um, it really is. Uh, the next tier up, I think you end up paying 10 bucks a month, but then all of a sudden your purchases get a percent back. So oh. it's, it's actually possible to make money uh, in a sense um, if you end up getting more money back than you pay every month for the card, as some credit cards actually do. I do have to reiterate that it is a credit card, so you don't have the, it is a debit card, so you don't have all the protections of a credit card in terms of being able to dispute transactions and so forth. But in a lot of ways, you don't need them. It adds a layer of protection to your debit card that you don't otherwise have uh, by putting uh, you know, realistic limits on it, by restricting the usage, by being able to turn it off and turn it on. You can pause a card, you can you know delete the card uh, online. There's just a lot of flexibility. Anyway, this sounds like a commercial for them. Um, I heard, like I said, I heard about this uh, um, from a commercial on Leo Laporte's podcast, one of his, um, and I started to think about it. I just fell in love with the idea. This is not a paid promotion. This is just me being uh, being pretty excited about yeah. about the level of control that it gives me over my debit transactions. I think, I guess the one disadvantage, the one area it doesn't fill is having a physical card when you need to have that physical card like say you have a kid at school and they want to go to the, you know, buy their books for the semester. Right. Um, not that there's, well, there's some of that still done, you know, being, it, it, they might not be able to use a, here's my, here's a number pin and expiration date right. um, at the checkout counter. I actually ran into the first ever case for me of not being able to use my Apple card. Um, I went to a local independent movie theater and they had some weird terminals that were like these screens that had these, things where you slide the card down the side of the screen. Right. And I handed them my Apple card and the person said, Oh, the Apple cards don't work here. And I was like, what? No. It's like, well, these are old and they're weird. And when you swipe an Apple card, it asks for a pin. 
And I was like, well, I have a pin. I have a pin. You know, you can look up and see what you know your number is. So I gave them the pin, and it didn't work. And they said, yeah, no, we've done the same thing with other people. I don't, you know, we don't know why these things are so old. We don't know, you know, what the deal is. We're just gonna have to upgrade at some point. And I, you know, I and I've used the Apple Card so extensively for everything. Right. For months now at but, little tiny food trucks and at old businesses, new businesses, online, you know, never a trouble. And this one place, I couldn't use my Apple card. It was weird. You're using it as much as you can via Apple Pay though, right? On your phone? Uh, well, yes, I, I do. But I'm talking, I'm not even counting that. I'm okay. talking about the times I actually use the physical card. Okay. Um, yeah. So... And the, uh, but Apple, but yeah, wherever Apple Pay is accepted, like I just went to the supermarket, the Apple Pay is accepted there. And I, of course I do that for the extra cash back and the privacy mm-hmm. that you get by using Apple Pay rather than using the card itself. Um, but there's even, but there is a diner, a little one-off diner here in Denver that you would think would be the last place in the world you could use Apple Pay, but they started like a year ago. <laughs> and it's even it looks like a crappy like their their checkout thing doesn't look shiny and new either it looks like it's crappy and old and all that but it has an apple pay sticker up there and i've been using it i first i got known there as the apple pay guy but now i think other people have started to use apple pay too there and uh and yeah so i've um, been doing what you uh what you and I talked about, I don't know, some months ago, I guess, when we were together in person, I'm trying to now use my uh, Google Pay on my phone uh-huh. as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, just to, um, A, because the convenience, B, the security, because it actually does not expose your actual credit card number to anybody. Um, and uh, uh, just to, you know, evangelize the technology. And yep, there is one place, I think it was, well, heck, it was my dentist yesterday. Um, I had to whip out uh-huh. a physical credit card to, to pay the bill. But the... Um, the one that that um, cracked me up uh, is that, gosh, a couple of weeks ago, I ended, I was at the vet, as we often do with the dogs here, and um, I had forgotten my wallet. I left my wallet at home, but I had my phone with me, and I said, "Do you, by any chance?" Because again, it's it's not it's not a high traffic business. It's not like they're doing lots and lots of transactions. And in fact, the card reader is like behind the counter and and you can see it, but you can't reach it kind of a thing. And, and uh, the, uh, the receptionist, Oh no, no, we take it. Sure. And she held up, actually, she took my phone and waved it over the little (laughs) terminal. And sure enough, the bill got paid. Um, And then I drove home very safely so as not to get pulled over. Yeah, because yeah. uh, you don't have your driver's license with you. Actually, exactly. I, you can in Colorado, you can have your driver's license on your phone, but I think you it hasn't yet kicked in that you can do it like if you get pulled over or something like that. I think it's only for certain uses. Right. But right. Uh, yeah, the, actually, my dentist today, uh, they, they do things right there in that I handed my card, they use the, use the uh, chip, and they hand me the card back, and that's it. No mm, signature. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, you're not supposed to need signatures anymore, but the credit card companies have really done a poor job of communicating that to people and software hasn't been updated and all of that. So it's like mostly the, the latter, yeah. Yep. So the coffee I got this morning, which cost like literally $6 for coffee and a scone this morning, they had me sign right. the sheet. But the very expensive dental work I had done today um, I just handed my card, they handed it back, and that was it. No signature required. So it is right. funny how 
Uh, yeah, there's places. having so actually you and I have both we've both done retail. We've certainly both um, involved on the fringes of retail, and you know the credit card companies, the the uh, payment processors, they've got an interesting problem because they have to distribute all this equipment to all these retailers, and then a new thing becomes available, be it um, you know. Uh, chips in cards or a requirement changes that signatures aren't required anymore or whatever. There's just so much that has to be changed and then rolled out to so many different mm. physical locations that uh, it doesn't really surprise me that much that uh, things aren't very quickly yep. uh, all, you know, equally, equally capable. Anyway, so that's, that's just my, my little, yeah. uh, my little experience with privacy.com. Quite happy with it, having fun with it. Um, to go, I'll call this one, so our next segment, so to speak, possibly off topic, but cool. This is not quite so much off topic, but it is pretty cool. Uh, one of the things I struggle with, and you probably don't identify with this because uh, you've got uh, an Apple ecosystem, is how I consume podcasts. On an Android, uh, it's it can be a challenge. I'll just say it can be a challenge. And the reason I say that is because Unlike Apple, there isn't like one standard player that everybody's shooting for. Mm. Um, even when you publish a podcast, it's like, you know, make sure you're in the iTunes store uh, or whatever they're calling it this week. And, um, you know, that's where you get the most visibility. That's great. A lot of podcast, you know, a lot of podcast listeners on Apple equipment. And one of the reasons is because there's a nice semi-standard interface that everybody uses and knows how to go to. On Android, it's not quite so common. I'm also, I'm, somewhat unique in that I tend to consume from different devices at different times. So I will, um, you know, use my phone, uh, you know, playing Bluetooth through my car. I'll use my PC. I'll use my laptop. I'll use whatever. So I would really like a solution that lets me not only play everywhere, but keep track of where I'm at, keep track of what's new. And that's usually the missing piece. Um, I actually have three or four different podcast players available to me, but I have to remember if I switch from one to the other, oh yeah, I heard that. Oh yeah, I heard that. And that's not new. And you know, those kinds of things. Long story short, pocketcasts.com, pocketcasts with an S.com. Um, it is a, um, uh, as it implies, it's a podcast player. Uh, it, there is an app for Android app, and, and actually, there's an app for your uh, for your iPhone as well. Those are both free, and actually, listening to podcasts on your mobile device is free. There's a small fee if you want the Windows web interface, or if you want a web interface, not just Windows, um, which I signed up for. I've been really happy. Um, I think it's actually helped me clean up my podcast listening game quite a bit. Uh, it makes it easy for me to skip over podcasts that I'm, you know, episodes that I'm not necessarily interested in while still remaining subscribed. Um, it's like I just discovered a few days ago that, uh, you know, I got this far on the podcast on my way home, but then I walked inside, fired up the player on the web interface, and it picked up basically right where I had left off in the car, um, which I just, I find that very, very useful, very, very handy, and it works really, really well. So pocketcast.com, worth looking at. Cool. Well, my thing is a mythic quest. You know what that is? Do you, have you heard of that? Uh, it sounds familiar. I think I've seen some ads for it. Yeah, it's a new TV show. It's, you know, on Apple TV Plus. So it's part of their subscription service. And it's the first real straightforward sitcom, kind of sitcom, uh, 
or comedy at least online and on their service. Uh, and it's basically a, a half hour show about a computer game company. So that's something I'm kind of a little familiar with because, you know, uh, most of my <laughs> career I've been doing computer games. And although I've never worked at one of those big, huge game studios that makes like those big titles like for the Xbox or for, you know, whatever, um, I have uh, been adjacent to them for most of my career, you know, working uh, with other game developers, uh, going to all the conferences and all that. So basically the the idea is that the, uh, the game company that uh, this is about is the worst of all of it. <laughs> like all the horror stories you've heard, you know, the egotistical, a creative director, the long working hours, the, uh, the, you know, the lead uh, developer who is just really bad at communicating with people and, um, you know, everything like that. Just the worst of everything, except of course for the game itself, which is extremely popular and, and, and beloved, which would have to be otherwise they wouldn't exist. So, right. um, but you know, and it's all just straightforward comedy funny situations that kind of thing um definitely fun definitely a lot of uh cool uh uh you know things that even you know if you're into computer games and how they're developed or just you know playing them uh they're fun a lot of references to world of warcraft i'm sure for you because of course their game is kind of supposed to be like that you know it's a big massively multiplayer right, right. world um Stuff there was, I so I'm not quite finished the season, you know. I'm binge watching it, all, all the episodes are just available. Uh, but already there was something unusual in it. Episode five, episode five of the series doesn't even have any of the regular actors in it or anything to do with the regular show. It simply goes back in time and tells a story of two people who make a computer game starting in the mid-90s and the evolution of that game over sequels and becoming really popular and their company getting really big and you know what happens to the game eventually over its lifespan uh, just told as a single half-hour episode. Not really a comedy so much as, you know, it's kind of almost like a little drama in the middle of it. And you find out at the end that there is a connection I was going to say, I hope there's a connection to what's going on. There is a a fairly, a a really interesting connection that you have to be careful. You know, you you catch the end and you say, ah, that's why this is here. And then, of course, there are other connections because the name of this game in there, uh, if you watch closely in the regular episodes, you'll see characters wearing, at one point, somebody's wearing a T-shirt from that game. (laughs) And so it's like, ah, I like how they, you know, have a complete world built in there. but anyway, that's a really good episode, episode five, which I think is called uh, uh, Dark Quiet Death, which is the name of the game that they're talking about Interesting. Um, in there. But the other episodes all take place, you know, in the studio and a ki- kind of more fairly, you know, get you a bunch of good laughs, a bunch of intelligent laughs, a bunch of low brow laughs at the same time. Um, fun, uh, a, a fun sitcom to watch. I don't know if there's ever really been done like uh, a, a sitcom on this topic. It was done like that. And it's from, if you've ever watched the show, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you'll recognize some of the actors and it is in fact the same, you know, production right. company and people behind it. It's probably what they're all doing now that Always Sunny is shut down. Yeah. Um, a question for you. Yeah. Is there any way for those of us who don't um, live, eat, and breathe the Apple ecosystem yeah. to view Apple TV on something other than? Yeah, it's available yeah. on, uh, first of all, it's available on Roku. They have a Roku box. 
There's an Apple TV app on Roku boxes. Okay. Anything fairly recent, last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of smart TVs, especially things in the last year, across all you know the platforms: LG, Samsung, all that. If it's recent smart TV, there should be an Apple TV app that you okay. can get. Now, of course, having a subscription is going to be tougher. I guess you can do the seven-day free trial and binge watch the show um, and, and some of the other shows too. I mean, I really loved For All Mankind. That's probably my favorite on the on the whole thing. But, um, you know, uh, you've got that. Oh, and of course, also, if you happen to own like an iPad or something, which, you know, some people do, you mm-hmm. can use the Apple TV app on the iPad and just simply watch the shows there. Right. No, I really, you, I mean, you know, assume, the assumption is you'll need an Apple account of some sort and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. You need your I Apple just, ID. Yeah. I was just, I was under the mistaken impression um, that uh, the Apple service only worked on Apple equipment, but you nope. just told me I'm wrong. That's great. No, they've worked really hard, uh, you know, in the buildup to the launch of Apple TV Plus to put this Apple TV app on all these different devices and television right. sets, so that uh, people could, uh, you know, so they could have a wider audience that nobody would be, like, you know, left out who wanted to pay them five dollars a month for the right. for the TV service. Cool. Cool. Well, after all, I will actually dive into that a little bit deeper now because I have basically dismissed all of the Apple commercials because <laughs> I didn't think I, I could get them. I could get them, I suppose, by watching them here on yeah. my Mac or something like that. But that's I think you'd really say. like For All Mankind in particular for you um, mm-hmm. as one of the shows. And you probably like some of the other ones too, but For All Mankind and then this new Mythic Quest, you'll probably enjoy those. Cool. In our blatant very blatant self-promotion segment. Um, I'd like to point everybody at an article, Diagnosing Web Pages with Inspect. Now, Gary knows what this is all about because I'm sure he's done it. Mm-hmm. Um, Inspect is a function in most modern web, devel- or web browsers, including Chrome and Firefox and the new Chromium-based Edge. And I think it was in the old Edge, and I'm pretty sure it was in Internet Explorer, that basically lets you take a look at a web page at the geekiest possible level. I mean, you're taking a look at the code behind the web page that makes it go. And this little article uh, basically is in response to, I wrote it mostly because I wanted to be able to point people at it who were reporting problems on my website, problems that I wasn't seeing. So huh. they would go to a page on Ask Leo and an image wouldn't show. And, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds with the inspect tool, and you get some really valuable data that says, oh, this is what's going wrong. Um, it's really, really useful for understanding why things are displaying or not displaying the way they are. Um, even if you do not understand HTML at all, it's a great way to provide valuable data to the people that you're going to report the problem to. But if you're a web developer, if you're wondering why that character is that color instead of this color, or why it's that big instead of that big, or why it's not floating to the right instead of floating to the left, I mean, all of those kinds of questions are the kinds of questions that I end up answering by bouncing around in the inspect tool. That's um, what you'll find when you right-click on a web page. It's usually on the context menu right there. Anyway, it's article number 112577 on Ask Leo. So you can go to askleo.com slash 112577. Gary? Cool. Well, I'm going to take the blatant self-promotion idea to the next level. <laughs> and I'm going to promote something you can't even see. Most of you can't even see. Um, 
I did a video this week uh, that I got some interesting responses and I was particularly proud of, but guess what? It's one of my extra videos that's just for Patreon people. So people that contribute at the Club Mac Most level, which is $5 uh, or more a month, um, I posted a video because I was doing another video. This happens a lot. I'm doing a regular Mac Most video on something and I gives, it gives me another idea. But that idea is like, hmm, this is really interesting. I don't know how many people are going to appreciate this. I don't know. But I make a video anyway, and then I post it to Club Mac Most. So a kind of closed group of 300 or so people that are paying that amount. And in this case, uh, it's an interesting technique because I was doing a video on organizational charts. So, you know, when you, you know, have like CEO at the top and then the VPs under them and you put them in bubbles and little titles under, you make it look pretty. And I was showing people how to do that in pages and keynote, you know, make pretty organizational charts. And it occurred to me, it's like, wow. So if I did this in numbers, which is the spreadsheet app for the Mac, I could put a spreadsheet table inside of each one of these bubbles and spreadsheet tables do not have to be any larger than one cell by one cell. So I could put as content in there a number. So you imagine a circle with a number in it, and it's just sitting there by itself on this empty white you know, sheet. And then I do another circle with a number on it and another one, and then I link them together with lines. And then I assign things to them like number of products bought, cost of the product, and you know they, those two are linked by two lines. And then the third, li- you know, the third box is the total price you know, the first one multiplied by the second one. And it looks like a flow chart, but it's performing calculations. You change the first two numbers and the third number changes automatically. And I decided to call these flow sheets. <laughs> I like it. And uh, it's basically another way to do, like a set of spreadsheets being a grid, it, they're anything you want with like arrows and lines and all this. And you could do cool things. Like for instance, if you wanted to calculate the total cost of your inventory, you could have number of items and the cost, and then have it, you know, arrows going to a third box that says, here's the cost or the total price. You could do the number of items and then have another line going to the weight, for instance, uh, and then have a calculation performed on that that goes to a third box that says total weight for all the items, you know, shipping weight or whatever. So you could change that one number in that first box, and now it changes two calculations that are connected by lines. It looks like a flow chart. And anyway, it's kind of neat. I threw it together and I was like, this is really cool. And I posted it. And a lot of people uh, there at Patreon think it's really cool. And yeah, I'm really happy with that result. And it's a good example of like an interesting piece of extra content that I like to put inside of uh, the, uh, the, the Patreon behind kind of the, sure. uh, the contribution wall. Sure, sure. Reward those people. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That reminds me of, 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 a, of an article I posted today for my patrons that uh, or I'm writing today. I'll have to talk about it next week. It's an interesting one. It's, it's using YouTube in ways that YouTube was not designed to be used. Ooh. Sounds much, very much like what you just described. You know, Let's take this tool and do something different with it. I like it, yeah. All righty. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. Yep. The show notes are at tehpodcast.com slash teh85. And of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.